This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Hello and welcome to the World Shared Practice Forum. My name is Neil Schechter and I'm a pediatric pain doctor and run the chronic pain clinic at Boston Children's Hospital. I'm very pleased to moderate today's forum, which will be the first in a series presented over the next few years on issues in pediatric pain. This series is funded through the generosity of the Mayday Fund, which has over the years supported investigators and projects that have dramatically improved the pain management of children throughout the world. And those of us in the field are most grateful for their ongoing commitment. In today's forum, we'll be discussing the role of psychology in pain medicine. I've chosen this topic as I think it will provide insight into our new understanding of pain as a complex multifactorial phenomenon and debunk some of the myths and oversimplification that surrounds this topic. We are fortunate to have a superb panel to discuss this important topic. Deirdre Logan is a pediatric psychologist who is the director of psychology services and pain medicine at Boston Children's Hospital. Deirdre is a clinician, an editor, and an established researcher and author of many original research articles and chapters on pain-related issues. She's held leadership positions in several national and international organizations focused on pediatric pain treatment and research. Rachel Coakley is the Associate Director of Psychology Services and Pain Medicine. Like Deirdre, Rachel is a clinician as well as a researcher. She's developed and continues to run a day-long workshop for teens and families to teach them about pain, which has been replicated in many sites around North America, and is the author of a book for parents on helping their child in pain. Deirdre, Rachel, and I are on the faculty of the Harvard Medical School. Finally, we're fortunate to have with us Christine Chambers. Dr. Chambers is a psychologist who holds the Canada Research Chair in Children's Pain and is a professor in the departments of pediatrics, psychology, and neuroscience at the Dalhousie University in Halifax, Nova Scotia. In addition to her extensive number of research publications, she's the principal investigator of It Doesn't Have to Hurt, a social media initiative intended to increase awareness of pediatric pain. So welcome to you all. Um, First question, in, in the old biomedical model, pain was often thought to either have an organic cause or to be psychogenic in origin. Now experts think about symptoms in a biopsychosocial model that conceptualize symptoms as a complex interplay between biological, psychological, and social factors. Explain for us, if you can, the role of the psychologist working with children with pain. Well, for one thing, psychologists play a big role in the assessment of complex chronic pain conditions. Uh, and that takes a number of, uh, of approaches. For one thing, uh, we work to elicit the meaning of pain for a particular child, so really understanding uh, what pain means to a particular child or family, what their past experiences with pain have been that may influence that, um, as well as, as the others around them, their families and their schools. Uh, we also really work to take a careful look at any comorbid psychological problems that might be going along with pain. Pain is such a complicated experience that it's very common for children to experience emotional or behavioral or thought-based issues along with their physical symptoms. Uh, so we try to understand what kinds of thoughts and feelings they're having around their pain. Um, we also look at the consequences of the pain for any given child and family, and these can really be very individual depending on the child and their experience. 
Um, and we also try to really understand how children have coped with other stresses in their lives <coughs> and how those coping skills may be brought to bear to deal with a pain problem. And then, of course, psychology is very integral in the treatment of pain as well. Most of the evidence-based research on how to treat chronic pain from a psychological perspective falls under the umbrella of what's called cognitive behavioral therapy, or what's termed CBT for short. And this is really a brief, goal-directed type of psychotherapy that addresses both the pain itself as well as pain-related stressors, such as absenteeism from school, difficulty with sleep, mood-related difficulties, and things along those lines. From a cognitive perspective, the treatment really helps kids to restructure some of the negative thoughts that might be associated with pain. So for example, instead of thinking, my pain will never end, we help kids to restructure thoughts like that, which we know can actually exacerbate pain, and to think about it maybe in the way that this is a really difficult day, but I know that I can cope with it. And then from the behavioral aspect of what psychology can do for pain treatment, there's really a, a two-pronged approach. One is the biobehavioral kinds of relaxation strategies that we teach, so things that help kids to relax their mind and their body to cope with pain better. And then the second is a structured behavioral approach to getting kids back to function. That's a really important aspect of how we help get kids back on track. Lastly, I think it's really important to mention that psychology has a very important role to play in helping parents to help their children cope with chronic pain. And we provide a lot of parent training as well as structured guidance for how to implement these skills and strategies at home. And psychologists play a really important role in helping children during painful medical procedures and supporting their families too. And painful procedures are very common, even for healthy children. Uh, you know, healthy children before age five can have as many as 20 routine vaccinations now. So how we approach these types of procedures is, is really important. And of course, children with chronic illness are particularly at risk for pain from procedures. The good news is we have lots of scientific evidence around how to best support these children. And some of the effects interventions are psychological interventions and many of them are the same types of interventions that were just described for chronic pain um, and also psychological interventions can be used really effectively in combination with pharmacological interventions like topical anesthetic creams for example so psychologists really can play an important role in helping weave together a treatment package for a child to support them during procedures that utilizes different types of strategies and is age-appropriate Great, well that's a good start. Um, so let's move on from there. So how do you think providers can best help patients, parents and kids alike, to understand their symptoms within this biopsychosocial paradigm? One of the things that I think is really helpful for providers is to be prepared in thinking about how they can address the complexity of chronic pain. For most kids and, and families, they find that chronic pain is a very complicated problem. It can be unpredictable at times, and there's often a lot of fear and uncertainty around the symptoms that the children are having. So providers need to engage families in this kind of discussion. And one of the things that we found to be really useful from a provider standpoint is using metaphors, breaking down the jargon, really helping parents and kids alike to understand uh, what it is and how their symptoms could persist. Um, so by way of example, one thing we might explain is that pain can be like a software glitch. And in, in that sense, we sort of explain to families that 
within the body, the bones, the tendons, the, the muscles may all look fine and well, but the messaging in the system isn't working properly. And that's very much like a computer that might have wires and uh, the motherboard might look fine on the inside, but the software itself could be glitchy. And we try to help them think about resetting that software, rebooting that software. Similarly, sometimes when kids have diagnostic uncertainty or there's not a clear medical uh, uh, etiology for their symptoms, sometimes we say that pain can be like a broken alarm clock. So you wake up in the morning, the alarm wakes you up, but then it doesn't shut off. You hit the snooze bar, you try to turn it off, you throw it out the window, nothing seems to work to turn off the alarm clock. And a chronic pain problem can be like that. It can be like an alarm that was supposed to alert you to a problem, but that continues to ring and ring without really any great benefit. And then we can sort of reframe and think about the interventions as being interventions that are designed to turn off that pain alarm. Um, Another way that we use metaphors is to help them understand why it is we have to approach pain from a multidisciplinary perspective. So sometimes we use the analogy of saying pain can be like a tricycle with three flat tires and that you might fill one tire with medication, but you need to fill the other tires with physical therapy and psychological strategies to really get going again. One of the things that I think is really hard for families to understand is why their child might be increasingly sensitive to pain or even have the sensation of pain spreading from one area to another. Or maybe they have a stomach ache problem, but now they have headache problem, and it's just hard to weave that all together. So helping to explain the nervous system sensitization process can be really useful in helping kids and parents to get back on track there. We often talk about the fact that there are many vulnerabilities, so parents often want to know why now, why my child, um, genetics, illness, injury, stress, worry, mood, all of those things can exacerbate the pain cycle. And so explaining how the nervous system function works and why those factors are really important in the, in the maintenance of a chronic pain cycle can be useful as well. The other thing I think that's really important is for providers to be able to clearly communicate that even if we don't understand what got a chronic pain problem started or specifically maybe what's maintaining that, we have a lot of confidence in the strategies that we use to treat chronic pain. And so there's an enormous research evidence base that supports the use of psychological strategies specifically for the treatment of pain. And they can be useful even when we're not clear what is maintaining or what got the pain problem started in the first place. And along with those ideas, I would really urge providers to recognize uh, that chronic pain can be hard for families to understand and accept. Uh, so when you're first seeing a family and trying to explain the kinds of problems that you're seeing, uh, it takes a little patience and a little, um, a little care to really help get that message across and explain the condition. It's important to really listen to these families. They've often been through a, a long process trying to find out what's going on and how to stop it. And sometimes they just really need to kind of put their story out there and feel heard, feel that someone understands. We often hear a lot of families say, you know, this doctor or that provider told us that the pain is all in my child's head or that my child might be faking their symptoms. And in our program, we really try to convey that that's not a valid way of understanding a child's pain experience, regardless of the etiology. If a child tells you they're in pain and a having a complex pain problem, that's a real problem and we want to make those children feel heard. Uh, another important and useful strategy can be to provide written materials. So you've got a family in your office and you're trying to explain this complicated problem, they're probably feeling overwhelmed and it may be helpful to give them some strategies. We can provide some here today, um, but giving 
a written explanation of a problem or how pain works or some concrete resources where they can go for further information um, once they've gotten home and can start to really process that. That can be a really helpful piece that anyone can provide for families seeking that kind of information. Uh, we find that it's helpful to really follow up with these families. So once they've uh, gotten through a diagnostic process and maybe started on a treatment plan, have them come back and keep tabs on what's going on um, so that they feel that they're, they're validated and they have some support. Uh, and I would also recommend um, thinking about ways to measure the progress that a patient makes. Typically, uh, patients and families focus a lot on pain and they want the pain to be gone and that's their measure of improvement. Uh, but it can be very helpful to shift that frame a little bit and focus first on function. Uh, so whether a child with pain is able to become a little more physically active or start attending school more regularly, those can be your first hallmarks uh, that something is working, that a treatment plan is successful. I think it's really important for families and children to know that you're on their team and you will do your very best to help them. I mean, to echo what was just said, uh, often these families are coming feeling very discouraged and dismissed and they feel that nobody is on their side or that nobody understands what they're going through. So I think in addition to providing explanations, you know, using that neuroscience framework is so helpful and also giving families those tangible resources and, and written materials that they can remember and take with them when they leave because often, you know, they hear one thing and then they walk away with a different understanding, it's important that families feel supported and empowered. I'm a believer that no one is going to advocate more consistently or effectively than a parent. And so by engaging parents and enabling them with the resources and information they need, they're better equipped to help their child, you know, whether that's from chronic pain um, or also pain from medical procedures. So when it comes to pain from medical procedures, I mean, some of the evidence-based interventions are so simple um, and easy for parents to use. You know, breastfeeding during painful procedures reduces pain. Um, distraction, uh, using topical anesthetic creams. These are, these are relatively simple interventions. And often parents just need a nudge from their health professional, from their pediatrician to use these strategies. There was one study that asked, you know, parents, why aren't you using evidence-based strategies to manage your child's pain? And they said, well, my physician isn't recommending it. And in that same study, they asked the physicians, you know, why aren't you recommending pain management strategies for your patients? And they said, well, the parents aren't asking for it. So, you know, clearly we have a problem here. And all it can take is just a simple comment from a health professional um, to inspire or enable or empower a parent to use the strategies that we know are effective. And that's all part of coming up with a plan, helping parents be prepared. Parents want to help their kids. Uh, they often don't know what the right thing to say or do is. They're nervous. They're anxious. So a simple direction, a simple plug, um, you know, it would help if you said this now, or have you, you know, considered trying this, uh, can be enough to erase some of the parents' anxiety and really can help family members feel supported. We would like to turn out to our audience and ask a question. When you reply, can you leave your city and country location? So the first question is, how do you engage the patient and his or her family in explaining chronic pain? What have you found that helps children and parents to understand how pain can persist even when there may not be diagnostic labs or imaging studies that account for the pain? So pain is such a common symptom. Many medical providers who are not pain specialists the way we are, are called upon to assess and respond to children's pain complaints. What guidance can you offer to help other healthcare professionals respond appropriately to children's pain? Sure. Well, for one thing, uh, 
I think it can't be said enough, just understanding and accepting that pain is real, uh, that pain is what the child says it is. Um, we have no other way of measuring pain than what patients tell us. Uh, and so that's a really important starting point for anyone who's listening uh, to a child talk about pain symptoms. Also important to bear in mind that everyone does not express or experience pain in the same way. Uh, we're doing an increasing amount of research looking at how people uh, process pain using techniques like quantitative sensory testing and finding that there's a huge variation. You take um, sort of what can feel like a standardized pain stimulus and apply it to two or three different people, they're going to experience that stimulus in very different ways for a host of individual factors. Uh, so recognizing that, recognizing that individuality is very important. Um, another important tenet to keep in mind, uh, particularly with chronic pain, is that hurt does not always equal harm. Um, as Rachel was saying earlier, we think of pain as an alarm telling us that there's a problem. In the case of chronic pain, that relationship isn't necessarily there. So when you start to move and use an affected part of the body again, it may hurt, but it's not actually a harbinger of harm. And it's important for kids and parents to understand that by using that body part and getting active again, it's actually part of the healing process, even though it may be painful to do. Uh, so sometimes the key to feeling better lies in what we call retraining the body, getting active, becoming functional again in spite of ongoing pain. Uh, I would also say that communicating among providers is really important. Many families dealing with a pain problem may be seeing a variety of specialists uh, and having a communication that occurs among those providers so that families are hearing a consistent message is extremely important. So if you were meeting with a parent who had a child with chronic pain and only had five minutes or so to give some targeted advice, what would you emphasize? One of the first things I'd emphasize is that the treatment of chronic pain is often counterintuitive. And this is really important for parents to understand because often many of the things that we're asking of parents and of kids don't feel normal or natural. And it's not the way that parents have thought about responding to their child's pain before. So we're sort of asking them to buy into a whole new set of skills and strategies. Um, I'd also be sure that parents understand that there is no blame associated. Many times parents feel guilty because their child's pain has persisted or they feel like maybe they weren't managing it in the optimal way. So you have to start by sort of acknowledging that this is a very challenging, complex problem and anything that parents have already done is done with the best of intent to help their child. Then one of the first things I really try to help parents understand is not to focus on the pain, which again, feels very counterintuitive. Mostly parents are checking in with their kids quite frequently how much do you hurt today? Was today a bad day? What number is your pain on the pain scale? And those questions, while intended to elicit care and concern about their child, can really have the opposite effect of increasing their child's focus on their pain. And in addition, it conveys to the child that this is a really big problem and that there needs to be a lot of concern on it. So we try to teach parents other ways to communicate care and concern, to keep parents focused on their child's adaptive recovery and on their child's function and to stop checking in about the pain. Um, that feels really hard for parents at first, so we need to give them quite a lot of support in making that shift. Um, the other thing I like for parents to know is that the recovery isn't linear most of the time. In other words, we often encounter setbacks on the recovery from chronic pain, and if you can set the stage by letting parents know that it's common for kids to have small setbacks, then they don't panic. They don't abandon strategies. They can sort of stay the course. Uh, with support in place, they can sort of recognize this is a setback, but we can get back on track here and we don't need to majorly uh, get, off, get off our 
path that we're on for recovery. Um, so we let them know that it's not linear. And then we also want them to know that some of the kinds of things that they maybe were doing to help their child, taking over their child's chores, for example, maybe offering a lot of extra help with homework, um, bringing their child extra snacks, presents, things like that, that they do, again, to try to help their child feel better, to cheer their child up, may inadvertently be reinforcing pain symptoms. And this is tricky because, you know, kids don't want to be in pain and they do need their parents' support. But even without their knowing it, sometimes those kinds of parenting behaviors feel really comforting and kids are less likely to give up their symptoms in a sense if those behaviors continue. So we ask parents to scale back on those behaviors and as much as possible start the return back to routines and things along those lines. Um, we want we want parents to model how they would like their child to be responding to symptoms. And so we ask parents, even if you're panicky inside, even if you're freaking out about your child's symptoms as much as possible, try to be calm, try to be uh, practical about the approach, try to stick to the adaptive kinds of skills and strategies that we know that can be helpful. Um, and don't respond emotionally to their child's emotion. Pain can be very unsettling for kids. It undermines their sense of safety. It makes them feel that something could be terribly wrong with their body. And so when parents become emotional, uh, when their kids express emotion, then everything tends to escalate. And so as much as possible, we try to help parents understand that their kids are always looking to them for how to cope with a symptom, whether it's in a doctor's office, whether it's in a school meeting, or at home, uh, parents need to find a way to help themselves to stay calm so that their child can see that this is a manageable problem. And for the parents of a child undergoing a painful procedure, what advice would you, would you offer to them? Well, being prepared and having an age-appropriate plan is absolutely critical. Uh, parents need to be aware of all the effective treatments, uh, and our research has shown that Simple distraction is highly effective um, in reducing pain and distress from medical procedures. And you know, psychological treatments, again, can be combined with pharmacological intervention for maximal sort of effectiveness. And you know, like chronic pain, the, the parents' reactions and parent modeling is so important. Uh, parents need to stay calm themselves. Uh, children are so aware of cues, even indirect cues from their parents. Uh, we did a study a number of years ago that looked at the relationship between what parents were saying um, and how children reacted during medical procedures. And we, we and others have found that, you know, reassuring children during medical procedures tends to be related to increases in pain and distress, um, which is a bit counterintuitive again, because, you know, in, you know, parents generally are reassuring with the goal that it would help their child. And we've done some follow-up studies to really try to disentangle what's going on there. And we learned through our research that um, children perceive their parents as anxious when they reassure. Um, they, you know, realize that their parent is feeling anxious about something and that in turn makes the child feel worse. So what does work, I mean, distraction, giving the child suggestions on how to cope, um, and even using humor. Those have all been associated with, you know, improvements in, in procedure pain management. So again, the role of the parent and helping the parent to feel prepared and empowered is so important. So we'd like to turn to our audience now and ask another question. When you reply, can you leave your city and country location? The question is, what new suggestions or ideas do you feel you could readily offer children and their families to help them manage pain? How about during procedures? 
when parents are referred for psychological services for the treatment of a child's chronic pain, what's most important to know? Uh, so first and foremost, it's important to recognize that not all psychologists or mental health professionals do this type of work. This is a, a somewhat specialized area of work. Um, there are a lot of kinds of psychology out there, and it's helpful if you can direct your patients when possible uh, to the right sorts. The, the type that we know from research are the most supported. Providers should explain that uh, a cognitive behavioral therapy approach has the most research support behind it. That's what we know through studies to be helpful in addressing pain symptoms and helping kids to feel better. It's typically a short-term, skills-based kind of treatment, uh, focuses on some of the things we talked about earlier. Um, a cognitive behavioral therapist working with a child with pain uh, would probably teach some relaxation strategies to help them learn ways to calm the body down when they're feeling distressed. Uh, they may work on stepwise behavior plans, helping a child to gradually uh, return to an activity or change some behaviors uh, in order to be more functional and start to recover from a, a chronic pain experience. Uh, they may also work on what, what's called thought modification, helping a child to uh, gradually kind of shift and restructure negative thoughts or worries related to pain toward more positive coping-based kinds of thoughts. There are some related strategies as well. So cognitive behavioral therapy has the longest track record, um, but some newer therapies have also been shown to be promising. These include strategies such as acceptance and commitment therapy, or ACT, which really focuses on identifying your values, what's important to you, and learning to um, live toward those values in spite of, of a pain process going on. Um, some specific techniques that have been helpful are things like biofeedback, Biofeedback involves uh, connecting to a computer program that is going to show you visually some physiologic responses, and then you learn how to control those with that feedback as an important piece of information. Mindfulness techniques uh, are becoming much more popular uh, for a variety of problems, and they can be very helpful in addressing chronic pain as well. Another thing to note is that um, there are a variety of types of mental health providers who might uh, be familiar with and good with dealing with chronic pain problems. So psychologists, uh, but also social workers, licensed mental health professionals. The important questions to ask are really whether a provider uh, has experience working with children and adolescents. Uh, that's the number one most important thing. Uh, and then if they have some experience with chronic pain, that's important, but not necessarily a requirement if you're in an area where there aren't a lot of providers. So are there any specific skills or strategies you could share that a non-psychologist could teach to children and their families? Absolutely. There are some of the strategies that we teach are pretty quick and easy to learn, which is wonderful. Uh, they might take some practice to get really proficient at, but lots of people could teach these basic kinds of skills and strategies. Um, one of the things that's really important from a relaxation standpoint, for example, is that, again, parents understand the science behind it. So by understanding that pain and pain-related stress or worry or fear increase nervous system sensitivity and, and understanding that relaxation-based skills and strategies via the parasympathetic system can help to reduce that sensitivity, um, then it really helps them to buy in and to understand sort of why we're doing this. And I preface that because one, one of the strategies that we teach is diaphragmatic breathing. And in a very oversimplistic kind of way, this is the advice, take a deep breath, um, which seems like it wouldn't make a difference. But the truth is there is an enormous amount of research supporting this as an effective strategy for triggering that parasympathetic response system, which is called the relaxation response sometimes, and helping kids to, great, to get comfort from pain and from stress. 
very simply how we teach this technique. Um, we teach kids either, you know, sit up straight so they can use their diaphragm or stretch out on a bed or on a chair, um, put one hand on their belly, put one hand on their chest. And the goal is to really breathe air in through your nose to fill the belly with air. So the sort of inhale expands the belly and then the exhale brings bare air back up through the belly and you breathe out through your mouth. And the way we sort of help kids to get this pattern of the breathing down is to think about breathing air in like you're smelling a flower, so in through the nose, um, down into the belly. And then we teach them sometimes if their hands on their belly that they can hold their breath there for just a second and so they can feel it with their hand and then switch to the exhale. And we have kids imagine that they're exhaling as if they're breathing through a drinking straw. And that pursing of the lips allows them to have a very controlled exhale so they don't just kind of and let all of their breath out at the same time. And we teach them to pace it so they breathe in for five seconds, pause, and then slowly breathe out again. Sometimes for kids, four or five breaths like this helps them to feel more calm and in control. But really our goal when we teach this skill to really sort of get the best relaxation response is to have kids be able to sustain this for 10 minutes or 15 minutes or so. And that takes practice because the diaphragm is a muscle. It can fatigue as they're learning this skill. So we do just you know practice it for a minute at a time or so when they're getting going. One of the ways that we help keep kids uh, engaged with a strategy like this is maybe to have them pick two words. You sort of think about how they might want to be feeling. So maybe they would pick the word calm and the word relaxed. And then when they breathe in, they think that word calm. And when they breathe out, they think relaxed. And so not only are they getting the benefit of the breathing technique itself, but now we're also tapping into the cognitive piece of it as well, which is having them think about how we'd like them to be feeling. Um, Another way to keep kids engaged, I might have them do one breath in and one breath out for each letter in their first, middle, and last name. And, and structuring it, just giving them some parameters around it, gives them something to focus on while they're doing the breathing so they know when they've done enough breaths for that trial. Uh, so that's that's one thing. Um, the, the other thing is that's, that's helpful to know is there are a lot of apps out there now that teach these basic kinds of relaxation skills many of them are free as well. Some of them teach this diaphragmatic breathing, but others might do guided imagery or other relaxation work. They're very easy to access and kids sometimes need to play around with a couple different ones before they find one that works well for them. But it's worth exploring and it's an easy way to tap into some of these relaxation skills. So I think that will be very helpful for many of our listeners who might not have easy access to a psychologist. Um, how would they identify where these apps are exactly? Just by looking in the app store, I think that there are many, if you put diaphragmatic breathing, for example, in or uh, breathing relaxation, you can see what they are. We've actually published a paper where we went through and reviewed many of these apps as well. There aren't a lot of child-specific apps out there, and so we wanted to see what might work for kids or adolescents, um, and we can provide that resource as well. The other thing I wanted to mention in terms of what non-psychologists can do to help support kids and families is to really help them with some basic behavioral planning. So when we're trying to get kids returned to function, we might think about school or sleep or activity as, as targeted behaviors that we wanna see improvement in. And, and we can really help families to structure this return to function with a very basic behavior plan. The way it works is this. We have families identify a goal, a very specific goal. So maybe it's, I want my child to be able to walk to school and it's a 20 minute walk to school and he used to be able to do it, but now he doesn't do it anymore. I have to drive him to school every day. So we say, okay, that 20 minute walk becomes your behavior goal. 
And then we figure out what's baseline. What can a child comfortably do at right now? And maybe the child can comfortably or relatively comfortably walk 10 minutes but then that's it. So that becomes the baseline. So the first week in the plan, you set up for the child to walk 10 minutes to school. So the parent might drive the child 10 minutes, and then they walk the, the rest of the 10 minutes. And then the next week, what we say is you increase by 10 to 20%, little, uh, little bits of increases so that incrementally they reach their goal. And the idea is that kids start to rack up successes. So many times when kids have ongoing pain, they feel like they're not meeting their goals and they're, and they're failing at school or they're failing with their friends or their sport teams. So we want them to feel like they're getting back to being successful with these goals. So we have them slowly improve, uh, slowly increase their goals over time, which in this case would mean maybe walking 11 minutes or 12 minutes instead of the 10 minute walk the next week. So by providing some structure, by helping families to identify a clear goal, helping them identify where, where is the baseline and think about how to slowly make progress over time, we can really set them on a path to feeling like they're making important improvements and, and, and reaching their goals. So, so pay, pacing is really a critical piece of Absolutely. all of this. Yeah, so I think distraction is another great tool that can be used uh, by you know non-psychologists easily. Uh, yeah, I, it's important to identify novel ways to distract kids that are age appropriate, and you know these types of things don't need to be super high tech. I mean, certainly the availability of technology, like having an iPad or an iPhone available with a game or some sort of movie to watch, I mean, that's helpful. But our research, we've done some systematic review work that's shown it doesn't really matter what you distract a child with as long as they are distracted um, to some capacity. And so, you know, pediatricians can easily have items available in their office that either can be manipulated by a child or even things on the wall um, that can be used for counting or distraction. And we know that distraction works especially well for preschool and school-age children. Great. So, so how is uh, psychological research uh, in the field of pediatric pain helping us to inform current and future practice? Well, so the more research we do that really validates these techniques and these approaches and underscores the importance of a psychological piece to pain assessment and treatment, the more um, clinics and settings are really seeing that value. So research has really provided a great uh, justification for folding psychologists into the multidisciplinary clinical approach. Um, at this point, a lot of psychologists are really integrated into those kinds of settings, um, not just pain clinics, but also in other kinds of departments, uh, like GI departments, rheumatology, sports medicine, neurology, many places in the medical setting where psychologists can lend a really important hand in understanding and addressing these pain problems. The other way that we see that the psychological research has really helped to shape how we practice is with the integration of parents into the treatment. Overwhelmingly, the literature supports that when parents are involved, actively involved in a child's treatment, the child makes better gains. And of course, that makes intuitive sense. Um, but what now we have a strong research base to support that as well. We're seeing more and more interventions being developed that really are targeting parents. One reason the parent training is really important is, again, like I was mentioning before, this sort of shift in how parents, how we want them to use these counterintuitive kinds of interventions. So instead of doting on their child, we want them to really focus on a return to function in a very planful, meaningful kind of way where they can focus on a child's adaptive recovery. The other, the other thing that parents are really useful for is helping, is working collaboratively with the psychologist in terms of 
identifying potential barriers for their child's recovery. So in some cases, kids do have secondary gains associated with their chronic pain. If school is a very uncomfortable setting because child aren't, children aren't doing well academically or they're struggling socially, then a chronic pain problem can provide an opportunity for school avoidance. And parents can often help uh, negotiate that and understand and enlighten other providers on the team about that as well. Um, so we, we really rely on them to provide good information that can help to shape the treatment. Um, and then of course, parents are critical in terms of the adherence to the home-based plans Typical outpatient treatment with a psychologist is once a week for an hour. And so all of those other days and hours that are out there, we're relying on parents to help reinforce some of these skills and strategies at home. So we really need to have them on our team. Well, research shows that parents play a critical role in supporting children during medical procedures too. We know that parent behavior is one of the strongest predictors of pain and distress during procedures. And again, parents want to be able to support their kids, but they often just don't know what to do to help. So, you know, that's part of what I'm very passionate about is making sure we get all this great science and evidence-based information into the hands of parents. And it's why I started a social media initiative uh, called It Doesn't Have to Hurt. It's to get parents the information that they need and I think we're, we're starting to think differently in the field about not just creating and contributing good science, but making sure that science actually gets into the hands of people who can use it. We'd like to turn out to our audience and ask a question. When you reply, can you leave your city and country location? The question is, what are some ways in which you help to facilitate ongoing parental involvement in the treatment of a child's pain? Another area that the research has really enlightened for us is um, the, the issues with school functioning in kids with chronic pain. Um, school is essentially the work of childhood and adolescence. It's what kids are expected to do. Uh, so I would argue if you're going to pick one functional goal to work on with a child with pain, getting back to school and doing better in school, getting back to baseline in school is a really important one. Uh, we have a lot of studies out there that show that kids with chronic pain have very high school absence rates. You know, they wake up in the morning and their pain is bothering them so much that they don't go to school. Uh, and as Rachel was mentioning, doing that over a little bit of time can create a vicious cycle where then the child becomes so behind on their schoolwork and may feel a little anxious about what they're missing out on socially as well, uh, that the idea of then re-entering school becomes really impossible to consider and they really need some help in achieving that. Um, we also know that many kids with pain struggle academically. Sometimes this is a consequence of pain or of pain medications. Uh, both pain and some of the medications we use to treat it can have effects on things like attention and memory. Uh, they can feel sleepy or it can be hard to perform well in school. Um, but alternatively, there may also be kids who may have been struggling with some learning issues prior to the development of their pain. That may have increased their stress level overall. School may have been a stressful place for them, uh, and in some ways that may have uh, increased their vulnerability to dealing with a, a pain problem or having a harder time recovering from a pain problem. So it really cuts both ways and is a, a really important area of research in chronic pain. The other thing that I think is important to mention too is that through our research we've really come to understand as much as we'd like to slot everybody into categories that this is not a one-size-fits-all kind of solution and so you have to be really flexible and open-minded in thinking about how you're addressing these symptoms. There are additional biological, psychological comorbidities as well, um, how long a child's pain has been ongoing, psychosocial stressors, um, school-based variables, all of that can really affect um, not only a child's 
symptom presentation, but also how quickly a child's going to be able to recover from these symptoms as well. One of the things that's really come out of that, of understanding that, that we can't have a one-size-fits-all solution, is that we're thinking more and more about a tiered care approach. In other words, what are first-line treatments for chronic pain? What would be a second-line treatment? What might be sort of a more intensive model of treatment? And how can we identify which patients need which level of care? We're getting a little bit better at it. More and more, we're trying to think about how do we shift this trajectory early in a child's experience of pain so that they don't end up with months and months of pain-related disability um, and have increased risk for psychological comorbidities. Um, so at the point when a child starts to have uh, ongoing pain, we think about what, what could be targeted psych psychoeducation, neuroscience education, what are the basic frontline skills that we want kids and parents to learn and how do we disseminate that? And whether you use a one-on-one uh, -on -one format, a group-based format, or some technology for dissemination of that information, we need to really be much better at getting that out there as sort of a first-line level of care. And then beyond that, we need more providers that are able to do this work so that they can be working one-on-one -on -one with kids that need a little bit more intervention. And then more and more over the last 10 years, we've seen the development of what we consider to be an intensive rehabilitation model of care. That usually includes intensive psychological support paired with intensive physical therapy to really target the mind and the body um, in the recovery from chronic pain. And I mean, pain is just one of many areas in health where we have what we call a knowledge to action gap, where we have all of this incredible information that can help families, but there's a practice lag um, in terms of you know it being implemented. And sometimes that's because of accessibility. Not everybody has access to uh, you know a pain specialist or a, a pediatric pain psychologist. But as we've discussed today, I mean, there's so much of what we do that can be integrated into care of children by different people. Um, we know so much. Um, and I think you know we need to all consider the roles that different health professionals can play in making sure that children get the pain management care that they can that they deserve, whether it's for chronic pain or pain from procedures. So thank you all very much for this enlightening discussion. I, I know a lot of the people who in our audience may not have access to to psychologists to work with the, have the luxury that we have, but many of the principles that you've described I think can be implemented in, in any setting. So thank you again. Thank you. Here is a summary of the key points discussed in this forum. We discussed that psychological strategies are beneficial in acute and chronic pain in children of all ages. The child and family should feel that they have been heard and believed. Chronic pain should be explained to the child and family, often using understandable metaphors. Psychological strategies for managing acute and chronic pain include breathing, distraction, hypnosis, biofeedback, and cognitive behavioral techniques. Success in treating chronic pain should be monitored by measuring function, not solely pain intensity. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.